The Dilemmas of Global Energy Justice. Interview with Darren McCauley, Episode 9. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Darren McCauley, professor at the Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Darren McCauley specializes in, in interdisciplinary approaches towards climate and energy issues. His research explores the interplay between security, equity, and sustainability in policies and communities across the world. He is widely known for his work on energy justice and the conceptual framing it provides to understand the importance of equity in the energy system. In this episode, we trace back the history of Darren's involvement in energy. We learn the background story on energy justice and how he got involved in it while at Trinity College Dublin. He describes his earlier work with Gordon Walker and Harriet Bacali, which prompted Darren to go further and explore the concept more with others by, by using a legal studies perspective. There are three key takeaways from my discussion with Darren. First. Darren is just great to talk to. I met Darren back around 2012, 2013, and as you'll hear in our discussion, we share a passion for a holistic understanding of the energy system and how society sits at the center of it. Second, Darren outlines the massive disruption of COVID-19, which is a chance for policymakers to push faster on the green transition. And here we discuss the preliminary findings of Darren's work on the UK, Netherlands, and South Africa where he is finding a compartmentalized perspective on the energy system and not a joined up system, a wide approach, where moving towards a sustainable energy system has knock-on effects for many corners of society and the environment. And the final takeaway is every researcher needs to get out of their comfort zone and travel. Okay, that's kind of my perspective, but still, and this may be harder to say while we are locked down, but me and Darren do discuss how doing research in developing countries can begin to prompt change. We do take a lighthearted view in our discussion here, but Darren expresses well the serious desire to make a difference in other parts of the world as an essential for anyone with a career in energy research. Thank you for joining this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. If you find this episode useful, please send it forward on social media. And now my discussion with Darren McCauley. First, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Oh, thank you. It's, it's great. Absolutely great to be here. Great. Good to have you. And now we're going to have a lot of fun. So my first question is basically how and why did you become interested in energy? It's an excellent question. Uh, <clears throat> so I think um, the first time I really developed an interest in energy was, uh, I guess, a, you know, scoping out ideas for my PhD. And I knew that uh, after my master's that I really wanted to engage with energy studies because I just felt that, you know, there was a, a lack of, let's say, uh, awareness of other issues other than technology and that a lot of the debates that I had been uh, sort of exposed to around energy was really focused heavily on what technologically can be done or cannot be done. So <clears throat> I, I knew that I wanted to work in France and that was, um, you know, that was the area that I find most interesting in terms of political studies, which is what I focused my PhD on. 
But I wanted to bring in an energy angle. So therefore, uh, the obvious thing to focus on in France was, of course, nuclear energy. And so I did my PhD really looking at policymaking of nuclear energy in France and I find it really fascinating. I initially started with this idea that I would sort of try to look at it historically and, you know, take like quite a political uh, view on how nuclear power has developed. But actually, when I got into it, I thought, wow, this is really good and exciting to be involved in debates around um, you know, let's say the broader ethical, political dimensions of technological choices and why France is choosing to do what, what they're doing and, and investing in the way that they were doing. So I, I think just coming into my PhD, writing up my PhD proposal was the first time I really got excited about, well, you know, let's try to think about the other dimensions of energy other than simply whether something is technologically viable or not. Mm-hmm. And so you, you looked into the, the politics. What, what is your PhD degree in? And then, then kind of go into detail about, about the yeah, case study so, in France. Yeah, so the, uh, the PhD is in political science. And um, I did it at Queen's University in Belfast, uh, which is an interesting place to, do, to study politics. So I wanted uh, to take a slightly different approach. And my uh, supervisor is... Uh, still is very heavily involved in the Green Party in Ireland. And my other supervisor is very heavily involved in uh, competition policy in the EU. So <clears throat> I talked to them about this nuclear idea and they were like, well, this sounds really interesting. So what do you want to focus on? So what I did was was really identifying uh, what the key drivers are behind French nuclear policy. And the work that's been done before, there's a person called um, Adrien Heritier, from memory, um, who wrote a lot about French nuclear uh, power, but not very much was understood beyond simply the post-World War drive to develop a nuclear program. Uh, So I was like, okay, obviously a lot's happened since then. So let's try to think about what are the modern day drivers of energy policy. And I started to look into things from political party preferences, you know, through to the whole sort of social movement dimension of, um, you know, around French nuclear power. Uh, But then interestingly into the the nuclear energy cycle um, of some particular power plants in, in France. And I started to sort of question, well, what type of political decisions are being made uh, that perhaps, you know, are related to the energy supply system of a nuclear power plant, um, what are the political decisions there that are being implicitly made and not very, let's say, publicly well known uh, that these decisions are being made not just by um, you know uh, EDF or or a French um, company, but actually in collaboration with other international players and stakeholders, and that got me really excited to. By the end of the PhD, I was like, wow, that's the exciting thing to focus on is like um, not just the the broad static national or local politics, but maybe the interconnections that energy has that goes beyond uh, localities uh, and connects with other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. The um, international, the almost, if I can say, the, the scalar mm. re- relations as a geographer, yes. right? And you've worked yes. with geographers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have since. I mean, back then, I understood scale in terms of governance. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, as a politics person, I was like, you know, these are different governance levels. And, you know, I'd be looking at the different 
governance systems at each of these levels. But then all of a sudden there's like, there's like the interplay between these levels really take place across uh, basically uranium supply systems and just how connected French nuclear policy was to Canada, for example, in terms of their uranium uh, deposits. Really? I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. So now it's all my PhD. I can pass it on to you. I I would love to read it. Yes. (laughs) Along with the literature review. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But it was, uh, yeah, and it it was uh, just really interesting to sort of uh, reflect on on the, I, I guess this exchange between very engineering focused interests with a more political interest, but not just simply within one given nation, which is what a lot of political studies, you know, does. Is either either you work nationally or you work internationally or locally, but actually there's an interplay here that revolves around the supply supply chain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, so that, okay. that was exciting. Yeah, yeah. Actually, part of that is my new new book. Everything's in my new yes, book. Yes, it but, is. But, 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 I read it. <laughs> yes, yes. Is the Russian I love connection? It, by the way. Yeah, you like yeah, it? Yeah. Okay. Did I it? Love it? Yeah. It it's officially published now in November. Yes. Uh, I think a few more days. So yeah. okay, we'll come back to that. But let's talk about you. <laughs> let's talk about. <laughs> but 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 exactly that, right? Russian. I mean, I, I use the example at least the Russian nuclear program in Eastern Europe. The international geopolitical dimensions as well with that. So, and and then then let's move on a little bit. Then so so I mean because a PhD provides this grounding, like you learn so much that you can't even put into your PhD thesis, right? And this kind of conceptual framing, at least for me, sticks with you uh, for a very, very long time, right? Until you re-brainwash yourself into some new framework or something. But, but you've moved uh, now into looking at, well, there's two, two areas we can look at this. Um, but I want to maybe go into, um, let's, let's look at energy justice, okay? Because now, now we're having our academic discussion. So, so you move then into, well, you probably did some other things in between. I don't know exactly, right? But then, then you started publishing more on, on energy justice and this, this framing. How, does, how, do, how did you get into energy justice and why is it important now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to, to think back because uh, uh, what happened straight after my PhD was, and I think for anybody who's, who's just come into that post-PhD phase, you're really thinking about, right, where can I get funded? What is the fundable idea? <laughs> Anything. And I have the yeah, other thing. I have to get funded on a project around waste incinerators <laughs> in, across the EU. So, like, it was exciting because energy and th- you know, there's, there's like a, a energy dimension. But, but then from that, um, when I was, I think it was a lecturer at Trinity College in Dublin at the time, and I got this grant on waste incineration. That was great. But one of the collaborators in that grant said, "Well, we're thinking about applying for a new grant, which ended up getting funded." called Inclusive, which was run by the Engineering Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK called EPSRC. And it was specifically on nuclear. Um, So he he heard me talk about nuclear and things like this. Um, But it was fascinating because it was run by Gordon Walker and Harriet Bulkley, who are big geographers. Yeah, yeah, right. So I should say... Uh My, my, my first lectureship after the PhD in politics was in geography at Trinity. So I started wow. to get into the geography side. 
So Gordon and Harriet was running this uh, project, I think it was maybe 2010, 2011. And uh, they, they started floating the idea of ethics specifically being applied on energy systems, but it really didn't work. So half <laughs> of the work packages, yeah, well, a lot of the work packages were, they were trying to bring together nuclear physicists and natural scientists with social scientists. And it just like the, the nuclear physicists just wouldn't, and engineers wouldn't pick it up and they didn't see the reason for it. And uh, Gordon and Harriet at that time, I think even if you look at their work, they sort of gave up on any idea of applying ethics to energy. They started to work much more on climate justice. Yeah, and also, sorry, a little background, and also their in environmental justice as well. Yes, earlier, yes, yes. yes uh -huh. that, that's where that's where Gordon in particular yeah. is coming from. He was like environmental justice guy, and he was like, "Oh, this isn't going to work." And Harriet as well. I understand. I mean, they were running it, so they had all, a lot more headaches. I was just involved in it, and but then I, I thought, no, I mean, honestly, there's still something here in this. Mm -hmm. um, so then I started to apply speculatively to some grants, smaller grants, and uh, and then we got those, and that was on energy justice. So it was more exploratory around 2012, 2013, yeah, yeah. Uh, which led to my first paper in 2013. So. Okay. Widely cited. Exciting. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, yeah. actually in a law journal of all places, but, but in, in any case, it was- With Raphael Efron. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we see, this is what happens was- the, these geographers, Gordon uh, Walker, as I agree, Gordon Walker and uh, Harry Bulkley, <clears throat> were thinking about it geographically. And they were like, well, it doesn't really add anything additional to environmental justice, really. But then I bumped into lawyers uh, like Raphael Heffron. And they're like, their whole conceptualization of justice is completely different, obviously. <clears throat> and then uh, that's where it sparked some new ideas that hadn't been covered in geography or politics. And yeah. and then yeah we as, as well as myself individually then um, it got successful in a couple of grants and then we started investigating energy justice. Yeah right and and, and so I see now then with with Raphael's background as as in the, as legal studies uh, yeah. bringing that in and providing this what I would call and what I do call like a normative framework basically yes. of this is justice yes. distributive justice recognition justice. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> because because then then it all started to become quite interesting because there already is a major body of work in energy around law because obviously energy needs that legal framework uh, to act and there, there really was very little consideration about the broader socio economic uh, connections from those legal frameworks. Um, so yeah, we got an ESRC grant, I think it was around, around 2012, 2013, and then also uh, a, a Carnegie uh, research uh, grant as well, very famous Scottish That's right. uh, name. Which, which <laughs> is in my name, yes. Yes, which is in your name. It's that Scottish connection, and uh, I don't know <laughs> what, it was always good that you were in St. Andrews. Yes, uh, yes, so when I came to Scotland, right, uh, I could at least visit and use that name to get into places. Yeah, I mean, the places we got into, do you remember? Wow. <laughs> I remember. We're not going to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> but wait, didn't we go to that Trump's golf course? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was hard to get into, that pub. Yes. yes we had to walk through the door. 
Yes, we did. Oh wait, no, no, that wasn't. Yeah, that was. Is is that Trump's at St. Andrews? I, it's not. It's not actually Trump's, to be fair. Oh, but, the um, other one. I rode is, by it on my bike. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, I didn't. I didn't want to break the story because because it is a very Republican, like in, in the U.S. term, Republican sort of area. St. Andrews is very right wing. Um. So, like Trump, etc., have been to St. Andrews quite a lot. And there's, oh, and then he got the idea. Of, why don't I open a golf course here? <laughs> Exactly, which is further north in sort of Aberdeen direction. But. Yeah, that's right. That's right. On my bike trip through Scotland, I, yes. I rode by it. Yeah, yeah. beautiful coast. In the wonderful weather. Uh, yeah, in the wonderful, the wonderful weather. Yeah. Rain. So, <laughs> so went windy when I was riding that a uh, oil rig was pushed ashore. <laughs> that's, that's about, and I was going against the wind. So my my I progress. <laughs> I have no plans to return on another bike trip. <laughs> No, 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 so, no. Okay, um, so that's how. Okay, that's a good framing uh, for the energy justice. And then move. I, I want to move into some of the more current research you're doing, particularly on the mm. COVID nineteen. And you have just published mm. this kind of policy think paper mm. um, right, yeah. uh, on on some pre- preliminary research that you've done with some interviews the mm-hmm. past few months. Could you describe why why you did that, and then I know, yeah. I kind of know why, but but why, and then the results of that. At least we can have some indications. Yeah, so sure. Uh, the uh, just building on what you were saying before. So the framework that was then developed around energy justice has uh, sort of created really interesting research questions, and in relation to energy justice, just transition is another sort of very similar conceptual framing that allowed us then to sort of think well. Let's think about, particularly in this context, um, the investment decisions that are going to be made uh, coming out of COVID, uh, this rebound that's going to take place, and how can we be sure that policymakers are going to be, uh, let's say, aware of the implications of their decisions, particularly over the next year or two. Um, And what was really striking, we did a a Dutch-UK comparison, because I'm now based in, in in the Netherlands, and we're following that up in a second phase where we compare South Africa. Um, now, <clears throat> what was really striking was the fact that the uh, we did over 60 interviews and there's still ongoing interviews. So this is like preliminary uh, findings. And uh, the both Dutch and UK side obviously see the importance of investing in renewable energy in particular as we come out of it. But what we found was a very narrow view of the way that, say, a broader Green Deal could potentially have. So both from a government standpoint and a business standpoint, we uh, tried to uh, sort of analyze our results and sort of thought to ourselves, well, actually, they're still viewing energy as a separate component to the economy, as opposed to actually seeing the potential, you know, transformative possibilities of a wider deal that could be constructed. So what we expected was, particularly UK and Netherlands, they're relatively, you know, um, well, traditionally in a global sense, quite the front runners in, in renewable energy and particularly wind, you know, offshore wind and things like this. But there seems to be like a, a sectoralization approach, which we're trying to argue is a very bad idea, where it's like <clears throat> we'll invest in, in energy and that'll be separate. Uh, but when it comes to everything from yeah, you've got obviously insulation, houses, things like this, but but what about what drives the rest of the economy? 
and uh, and also having having uh, an eye on driving downwards the fossil fuel elements of our economy. So there was no real discussion about hydrogen uh, in terms of storing electricity. There was no real discussion about heating, and there was very little discussion about um, you know car usage, automobiles. Um, there seemed to be again this sort of uh, you know, singular focus that a lot of the stakeholders have, and, and we're going to try to report back to them. Well, you might want to broaden that focus out a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I so, can give I, some other examples. No, no. I guess my question is broadening it out. So, because mm-hmm. framing the response to COVID nineteen of "Hey, let's clean up the environment" seems like mm-hmm. a good good policy framing, mm-hmm. basically, like. Yep. Uh, we're all going to die anyways from climate change, but let's clean up the environment before before we do, before the the, the end of the day, <laughs> like the, the world collapses with this pandemic, right? I mean, pandemics seem like a good time to reflect. Uh, this is me talking, right? I'm not a politician, sure. right? Pandemics are a good time <laughs> to reflect. Sit at home and, and reflect on your life, right? But, but I mean, like, it seems like a good opportunity, particularly in forward-leading countries, that have done so much on renewables and are building a renewable energy system, and particularly where gas is running out, the Netherlands and the UK, so uh, where they could push forward even strong, more strongly on on renewables. Yet you didn't get this impression. No, um, <clears throat> so <clears throat> to be fair, that you know they were um, like so. So we we covered businesses, trade unions, uh, government officials. At every level, we've got some very high high level um, interviews as well, and <clears throat> I think there was definitely a sense that we need to invest in renewable energy. But uh, what was happening was, whenever you start talking about jobs, for example, and where uh, you know obviously we're going through and we will be going through the greatest job crisis in in certainly the last 50, 60 years uh, at least. So our questions, particularly around the just transition frame, framework, was really thinking about, well, how are you going to promote, uh, let's say, jobs that are going to complement and drive forward a green future? So not just, not just investing in you know, renewable electricity generation, but uh, the jobs not just so associated with that, but, but maybe jobs in other sectors that are going to contribute. And that's what we mean by there being a lack of reflection on on how best to bounce back in that way and uh, we're calling for a much more integrated approach where maybe you have the investment in renewables in the center but from that it's not just about cleaning up the environment but it's about creating either green jobs directly or indirectly it's about creating new education systems that are aware of this future job needs that people are currently trying to pivot towards that are also you know, aware of the types of welfare policies that are needed in place to try to create cohesion around this, this sort of green vision. I mean, if you sort of think about Biden's view about Green Deal and uh, you know, the EU Green Deal, at least it's an effort and there's lots of negatives I could talk about in both. There's lots of negatives there, but at least there's an attempt to consider the societal environmental and economic-wide implications that could be really benefited from uh, whenever you think about the bounce back post-COVID. Uh, and I don't think Netherlands and the UK, or we don't think, 
are really doing that as well as they should. Mm -hmm. And on the because yeah, in here I think we can go into the just transition uh, more, mm. more more detail then. And part of the just just transitions, uh, we could say conceptual framework as us academics mm. working through that. But but also, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, labor unions are heavily involved in this, and this is one one area, or they were the contributors towards saying, "Hey, let's have a just transition," and they kind of started this initiative, right? And so, so what is there from your interviews that you did, at least, kind of w what was your impression of this ju just transition and job creation, and here we could create new jobs because of this crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. So the, if you sort of see energy justice as a way of going, well, there's a very basic ethical framework being applied to energy. We need to broaden it out. Uh, just transition, the way we're approaching it is the same. There's a very simplistic framework, which is, you know, jobs that are being lost by coal mines closing, by, you know, power stations closing, they need to be replaced. But then what we're trying to challenge trade unions and others with is, well, it should actually be broader than that. It should, of course, have a job creation replacement scheme at the heart of it in order to, you know, uh, be a just transition. But in what way, in what ways can we sort of think about ensuring that not just a just transition involves jobs, but also in jobs, other parts of society and economy and the environment. So there's no real discussion around uh, trade unions in creating uh, sort of green jobs that are, uh, having a minimal impact on the environment, for example, um, and uh, or having a say a, a positive contribution to communities around them, uh, it's much more focused on the individual job. So there, what we what we find was is great that trade unions are trying to pursue this line that you know let's try to create new green jobs and you know this this they're they're thinking primarily the renewable industries. You know, so the way they visualize it is coal power station closed. Those people will go and then work on the wind turbines. And you're going, yes. no, 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 that's that's not going to happen, right? And and we tried to we tried to really challenge them with reconceptualizing uh, green jobs by not only being uh, the broader supply system, which is really important, but also the jobs that are created by renewable electricity, uh, having a positive feedback loop in that sense. Um, so, um, in that in, in that way, trade unions are a positive force, but we should still, as academics, challenge them to think more integratively and more positive about the sort of impact that this job recreation process could have. And the reason why it's important in this context is those two things aren't really talking to each other: the the job creation aspect and then the energy renewable energy needs. Uh, it's almost like the two different agendas and they need to be united uh, otherwise they're going to potentially push in opposite directions and that's the examples of that that's the energy system right just uh, those yeah. two examples that you have the both the research that you found and okay this is also a bit more though too is is the energy sector right it's so integrated to everything that job creation a green job mm -hmm. doesn't have to be directly related to power output Right. It could also be no. both both construction jobs or, I don't know, yeah. laying cables or something like this, you know, for exactly. a smart city, exactly. this type yeah. of thing, much more, much more integrated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
<clears throat> on top of that, it's it's even you know you should be thinking about <clears throat> renewable energy development as as being right. Okay, this is actually going to generate say uh, people uh, jobs people working at home. So there's a whole new wave post pandemic where we'll all be working at home much more. Obviously, as we're doing right now. Obviously, ah. Uh, I know, I know, it's, it's killing us. I know it's killing us, but it's going to happen more and more. Well, we need, we need uh, internet connections. We need uh, increasing um, residentially cheap electricity. We need, uh, you know, heating. Um, you know, to what extent will employers look after us in that way? Whenever you're trying to do a, a, a lecture and your your Zoom won't work, you can't get the technician from next door to come in to help you. Uh, so your neighbor, really your neighbor, you got to have a your good neighbor. neighbor. <laughs> exactly. Your neighbor. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. They, all of this needs to be viewed within within a green prism uh, because there are positives there. You know, you're, you're commuting less, you're you're consuming potentially less external to the home, things like this. So it, it, the energy system is so integral uh, and it goes back to our earlier parts of conversation is like it's not just technology here. And it's not just a singular sectoral you know, aspect that it involves. It's actually so much wider. And that's what we're, you, you and I, in different ways, are involved in trying to get people to think about so that we make decisions that don't contradict each other. So just one last thing. I came across this really interesting idea of value conflicts. Mm -hmm. So it's like um, what we don't realize is in one sector, we can often go, this makes sense, okay? So let's, let's invest in wind energy, let's invest here. Uh, and this is a great value to have. But then in the job sector, as we were talking about before, okay, we'll do it this way. And then all of a sudden, those two values begin to conflict. And once they do, then you've got a complete breakdown. Uh, and this is the reason why we need to try to avoid value conflicts uh, and make sure that each of these different component parts are talking to each other uh, so that we can actually have some sort of sustainable solution at the end of this. <laughs> but but isn't that where, where politics come in? I mean, I, in a sense, we could use the U.S. as a great example. Biden and Trump mm. supporters in different approaches is completely different value. I don't want to say completely different value system, but very strong <laughs> in the area of energy or jobs, different value systems operating there. Oh, Totally. I mean, the U.S. is a is is a great is a great example, and I think that's where we've got to be really careful about. Uh, you know, whenever we're developing policy solutions, that we're aware of these different value systems that exist. So, let me give you an example from my own research uh, that uh, you know, potentially could also hopefully take place in the future if our project comes together. Oh yes, Mike, our which proposal, is, which is exactly. Which is on Groningen. So I have a, I have a student working on, on the gas fields in Groningen. And one thing that really is striking is the value system of, say, pro renewable uh, community in Groningen is very much one of direct action. Okay, so we need to pull down the gas system. And this is, this is very much like a central, you know, anti stance towards uh, fossil fuels. Then on the fossil fuel side, the value system, because the gas, uh, you know, this is talking the small scale city because the, the gas system has been in place for so long and delivered jobs. It's so much more consensual. Now, the interesting point here is now the gas system is being 
it's been decided that it's being run down and going to be replaced in the future. The pro-renewable communities have are so used to being ingrained in this value system of, of anti-establishment that all of a sudden now they're being asked, okay, we're going to situate some uh, district heating networks here. We're going to you know, uh, deliver different types of technology, technological solutions. So will you help us deliver it? And it's like, well, there's no know-how there in Groningen and how to do that. Uh-huh. But there is know-how, know-how in, in the fossil fuel system uh, companies and industries. So it's like two different value systems that all of a sudden have to talk to each other, uh, which is going to create uh, you know, some interesting, uh, is creating some interesting weird policy solutions so they have to go out because what the to build the district heating system so that replaces the heat but then they also what yeah. electric have to electrify everything so they're getting rid of gas yes so like it's like how do we maximize the infrastructure that's here in Groningen, which is fossil fuel yes and then how do we repurpose that well ah. the fossil fuel people are are heavily involved in that because they're used to this is what what we do, but then they the, always the have renewable. a place at the table. Exactly. So you got you got the the setup of new renewable energy companies and NGOs that are that are of this more consensual nature, beginning to circle around Groningen, uh, and 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 that's a real value shock for the for the locality. Now, the reason why I said this is because, like, if you don't, if you're not aware of that contextual mm. uh, specificity, uh, you know, the, the particular, if I may, then, you know, then the universal is, is sort of redundant. In that yeah, 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 it's particular, right? It's, it's, it's those value, yeah, yeah. local value systems that are also shifting based on exactly. larger value systems that are sh- shifting. So, so yeah, yeah I, what, yeah, Right? I, I read, I read, I read that in a great uh, paper by uh, I don't know somebody. <laughs> I, no. I don't know what his <clears throat> name is. <laughs> exactly. Just, just make sure you get that citation in there, so I, yeah. I get the credit. It's thank you for studying my article. I, I'm, <laughs> no, no, but but it's it's true. It helps. Yeah, the particular and the lo- uh, yeah. the universal interpretation. Universal, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and uh, I, I wanted then to move on to to the Green Deal. Uh, you mentioned mm. that, and yeah. um, you know, actually, the reason I'm doing this podcast <clears throat> is just to get information from my own own research. And everything we've been talking <laughs> about ties into exactly what I'm writing about every day right now. Uh, and yeah. one of it is the Green Deal. So I would be really interested to hear your yeah. kind of interpretation or early interpretation. We can say of of the mm. eu's green deal and what does this all mean uh for for yeah. energy transition <clears throat> so it's a it's a really good uh, question and we're, we're currently writing a, a series of different uh, think pieces around this <clears throat> and to tie it into what we were talking about before um we just wrote a piece recently about uh saying the because obviously a core component of the green deal not core but one of the major components is the just transition mechanism and just transition platform and we, in, through investigating it, have really pulled it apart and suggested that the only thing this is going to do is going to create more of the same. Oh, so this is why this, we, we, yeah, we have to talk. We have to talk offline because exactly yeah. this is this is my conclusion. I'm working through a case study from Romania. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, I, I have to say on a 
on a sort of uh, in a commercial uh, standpoint, I've been working with Deloitte Poland um, uh, on a project looking at uh, the sort of how do we set up just transition within that context. But through doing that and researching it, I've become extremely cynical about the way the EU is approaching it because uh, I think it was 16th of September, there was a parliament um, debate in the, EU, in the EU parliament and they they basically decided that fossil fuel projects, particularly gas, will be allowable uh, as a fundable topic area for the EU just transition, uh, you know, which, which in itself, I know there's a debate around gas is better than, you know, coal and things like this, but but we really should not be funding um, and align the, the funding of projects like that if we're going to really drive forward a, a future just transition. So, so wait, I, I need to clarify it because I had a different interpret. So they, they're going to fund uh, projects that are related to maybe uh, increasing gas, gas usage yes. or something yes. rather than yes. let's phase gas out because... Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. And and uh, this is uh, this is something that uh, you know the original Green Deal was supposed to prohibit. So it's a really good example of the way in which uh, business as usual is taking hold of what initially was some interesting, exciting ambitions, but actually in reality um, is being dragged back down the gutter of uh, effectively funding what is already taking place. So. There are literally uh, coal power stations that are applying for just transition money off the back of of repurposing their sites as gas sites. And you know, if you take if you take a step back and and if you may to bring in Scotland again, uh, Scotland is uh, so is heavily involved in in setting up the Just Transition Commission in Scotland. So it's a it's a topic area I was really interested in and still am. But uh, there's been quite rightly recent debate about the fact that there's been a substantial amount of money put forward to repurposing fossil fuel workers uh, into renewables. And then you're sort of going, well, wait there. Companies should be doing this. Yeah. You know, yeah. Why, why, why is taxpayers' money going towards this? Yes. Uh, and and then, then you get these different projects like, uh, you know, CCS projects in Scotland that also are falling under a just transition and you're beginning to realize well actually this is just another way of funding fossil fuel companies and then you apply that to the eu green deal and you start to see the same thing happening it's it's almost like it's almost like the somebody you know collective ambition is there but it's like the structure of the system is driving it back down to business as usual mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's it's uh, horrendously disappointing to see to see the way it's developing at the minute. Uh, because, and that's just on the just transition stuff, but there's bigger things. In the no, 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 but, but the just transition mechanism that they're setting up is mainly this funding mechanism, with which is both yes. public and private, includes yes. loans. And what is it, like $450 million Or I, I, I don't know, off the top of my head, yeah, it's yeah. just maybe yeah, close to yeah. a billion. A yeah, huge, yeah, huge yeah. amount. And then yeah. it includes fossil funding fossil fuel projects. Yeah, let's well, be cynical. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> It, it, yeah, no, absolutely. I and mean, it was even worse than that because it started, it started uh, at a really big um, amount, and then the amount's been driven down as well. Um, so there's um, not only is there less money 
maybe understandably, I suppose, the pandemic, et cetera, but also that money is more is more accessible to, let's say, not, I don't want to say the wrong people necessarily, but the wrong causes at the very least, if we're going to talk, you know, about just transition. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that. the label, right? Just transition. Yeah, so the, the, yeah. the idea is that we're transitioning away from fossil fuels. Exactly. Or, or let's just say that we're transitioning away from yeah. fossil fuels. Like if you use that term, that's what it means. And yeah, then, absolutely. And, and, but you know, it, it almost goes to the point where the EU's 2050 kind of agenda also relies on carbon capture and storage and all this technology that that's supposed to be in place already that's not in place and basically it's bs the whole i don't want to say the whole thing but but no but it, it it does become really discredited yeah you're absolutely right it discredits the whole it feels more you know i, I remember reading in the guardian i think it was george monvio and uh, maybe yannick varifakis i think wrote something whenever a trillion euros was the headline figure for the green deal. And they were like, look under the hood, you know, it is much, you know, it's first of all, repackaging existing um, commitments. And then on top of that, there's actually a lot of uh, holes where this can be manipulated. And I have to say, initially I was like, no, come on, this, at least there's something here. It's like a trillion euros. It's a great initiative. But actually, as it's playing out, it's being took, taken apart in a really negative way. And it's very disappointing to see because really, like, uh, if, if, if we're going to take this seriously, I mean, there is um, a really good uh, clip from uh, head of IMF, I think it was, and was talking about this, the, the two waves that we're currently facing. The first is the pandemic and the second is climate change. And the you know, these are natural phenomena and you can either bury your head in the sand and pretend they don't exist. But like we've seen with the pandemic, you know, it's, it's hitting, it will hit us and it is hitting us right now. So if we don't wake up, you know, uh, in the EU area, if we can't make this work, I mean, my goodness, I mean, we're done for really. Um, yeah. So no, no, no. I, I, li- I like how you're doing the research now and just looking at this yeah. this connection, basically, if the pandemic yeah. prompts any any kind of change towards exactly. towards the environment. I want to um, just sh- shift it a bit. You mentioned yeah. also that you're doing a bit of work on uh, Malawi, Malawi and oh, Uganda. Yeah. Now that we yes. can't travel and uh, <laughs> we're, we're stuck. And, and, you know, I, I've kind of proposed or I made a promise to myself, like every winter I'm going to travel someplace warm, right? And <laughs> and do research or something like this. Now I can get some funding basically, right? And and I can go <laughs> to anywhere in the world and contribute and do something. But now we're all yeah. locked down. So so you have some projects there or in how? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, uh, to, just to make it even funnier, I've got... So I, a Haze 2020 project focused on the Arctic. Uh, and then I've got, uh, I've just come off some GCR, GCR, GCRF, which is ESRC funding in the UK, which is uh, two years worth of funding looking at Malawi and Uganda. And then now we've got a project, which is NWO, uh, South African, um, I can't remember the name of the, of the funder in South Africa. Marion Fund is the title which is then looking at uh, South Africa. And the reason why they're connected is, well, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, what's really striking is the incredible inequalities that exist 
around energy policymaking. So what we did over the two years in particular on Malawi and Uganda was, was try to think about what, what's the energy justice implications of hydroelectricity. And that's where we started, but that opened up a whole new line of questioning by the end. So we, we were sort of thinking, right, you know, uh, what are the sustainable options here for Malawi and Uganda? You're talking, you know, around about 330 megawatts, uh, you know, for country. That's it? Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's extraordinary. You know, okay, like, just to put that was, in context, uh, yeah, it's not, it, it, that's like a large coal-fired power plant or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, well, it's inter- interesting you say that. Uh, Kamawamba coal power plant was uh, proposed by the Chinese, by a Chinese investment bank uh, last year, and that would have overnight doubled the national electricity generation of Malawi, overnight. Wow. One, one coal uh, power plant. Uh-huh. Yeah. But... The, interestingly, the reason why it didn't go ahead wasn't because of any, you know, value-based, to go back to that uh, decision by the Malawian government, is because the investment bank was not sure that they would get their money back because there aren't enough people in Malawi to afford the wow. electricity. Wow. You know, so like, boom, I mean, your head explodes at, at, the, at the, the multi-dimensional layers here to investigate. Yeah. So, and this is a, it, the, the reason why this became an interest was because speaking to engineers at Strathclyde University in Scotland, engineering, you know, heavily focused university, they were saying that they spent around about eight, nine years developing all these te- technology pilot schemes driven by the Scottish government uh, that just aren't being used and being taken up because in in the end, they're either technologically too difficult to run or uh, not cheap enough. And this is the, the terrible reality in Malawi is, is investors don't get their money back and therefore they're not investing in energy. And is that right or is that wrong? And But, but is, where- it, is it fostering, I, I'm, maybe it's a good thing. Is it fostering more renewables on a small mm. scale? Yeah, I mean, so so you're you're right. I mean, these are the things I was thinking of as well. I was thinking, oh, okay, this this could be good. And but what it's fostered is the most incredible deforestation you've ever seen. Oh, uh, so obviously charcoal and uh, you know very rudimentary ways of of particularly heating and cooking, but also creating electricity has been over the last number of years the option. That people have been driven to, which has been horrifying because now they're at the stage where the deforestation is so bad, like they, they literally are running out of of, of wood. And, and, secondly, they, and, and sorry, I just want to explain. Uh, so please. the wood is being used for like cooking, I guess. Yes, mm-hmm. it's really bad for health. Really mm-hmm. bad for health. Yeah, and it's uh, it's also so in a paper we've got coming out in the RSS, uh, we identify some of the recognition justice aspects, uh, for example, involved in that, because the people who go to get the wood are almost invariably women in the family, in the household. And we charted some horrendous uh, statistics and individual stories of uh, women being assaulted on the way to nationally run and protected forests. Mm. Because we're literally, they're armed they're armed cops or or police or 
military as what they look like to me, uh, surrounding the few bits of national woodland left. And there's been these documented cases of assaults taking place uh, routinely. And now these are the types of energy inequalities that, that are going unreported and unanalyzed in academic data that's, that we have unearthed for this paper coming. Um, so there's obviously this very emotive angle and really important angle. And then there's the there's also the, the policy dimensions and the way that you know uh, utility companies are just horrendously corrupt on one hand and then just really inept on another. And then we tell another story about how the international community is basically pursuing this very pro-solar uh, approach, which is being uh, really badly implemented and then almost confronted with a, with a, with an incapable national government system of of uh, offering alternatives. So it's it's a very depressing story, Malawi, and it's connected to Uganda because Uganda is also very heavily driven by hydropower. Um, so we we sort of investigated both together. So yeah. mm -hmm. and I just follow up because I mean I'm just drawing on my experience from Myanmar. Uh, that's where I went mm. last last uh, December, yeah. and and yeah. we went to some villages there. And yeah, I mean because okay, I'm very as we are white male middle age, right? We we yes. our background is completely different, and and it, it's just uh, when you go to some place like that and you see. The, the women going and collect the firewood and carrying it back on their head. Uh, imagine yeah. probably the same way. They got to cut it up. Yeah. They have to dry it out. And it's all just to cook. Uh, and it just seems like this huge, you know, time intensive, resource intensive thing. And then if you add the security element, personal safety element on top of it and deforestation, environmental degradation, I mean, what's going to happen in 10 years? Then, then, then it's massive, and I agree. There's not so much. There's, I mean, from what, yeah. There's not so much academic literature on this. Some, and I, what? It's mainly from like refugees, or refugee camps, and cook stoves. There's literature on cook stoves and the technology behind that. But again, it's this integrated system into the energy system, right? Women and just people are put into these positions just to get the fuel, right, for their own energy consumption, for cooking, or, um, but, but maybe uh, in, in this example, why I thought it would be might good, might be good, because they don't build a coal-fired power plant, because maybe there is more solar, but you're saying even on the solar side, like small scale, this was my experience in Myanmar, was people were at least buying small solar panels and a battery and kind of hooking that up to charge their phones and to watch TV with. So you're absolutely right. Um, exactly the same process in Malawi. And maybe to build on the positivity there also is um, we encountered a number of people who were telling us about the liberating aspect of that. So some women uh, would then uh, be able to set up hairdressers in more urban areas where their families are maybe in a rural area. And uh, they would come along with their solar panel um, which would allow them, uh, particularly in the hairdressing um, industry in particular, uh, which you know was really, although it's a small scale thing, it's really quite transformative across Blantyre, which was the city the, in the south that we focused on, but also in the long way in, in the north. We heard exactly the same types of stories. So 
so yeah, you do get these individual solar um, uh, projects, or not projects, sorry, uh, products. But in addition to that, the international community, I don't know if the same Myanmar, <coughs> because the international community was heavily involved in investing in very large scale solar uh, parks, uh, particularly in the north of Malawi. <clears throat> but the problem with that is that it was almost entirely uh, constrained by the lack of the national grid. Yeah. And almost entirely, therefore, actually driven for industry needs in, uh, in the long way in, in the north and um, not really going to impact on individual lives because of the lack of a national grid connecting, particularly in the south of the country. So, uh, so there's a positive and a negative story around solar, um, mm -hmm. which I thought was quite interesting. No, same same thing. I, I well, we can draw all these parallels. Mm. We, we we should, yeah. When the world should opens up, we should write a up, paper together. We we should write a paper together and another yes. proposal because a similar situation right. in in, exactly. in Myanmar. The grid was exactly. actually in the village I went to. The grid was right there. Just these people were not even connected to it, and they and they ran a small diesel generator to power the whole the whole village. And that wasn't enough, so they had their individual solar cells as well. So, I mean, just the disparity and just, it was just shocking. Because if they had access to the electrical grid, they would have electrical hub for cooking. And and just, yeah. Just what you said there, I, I, I know um, I don't want to drag out too much, but but just what you said there is such a great observation. And you have to you have to really go there to investigate it to see that. Yeah. where technology meets meets uh, social uh, issues because we've seen exactly the same thing in Malawi. Uh, these uh, particular types of um, you know lines that be going overhead that yeah. you just physically cannot connect. You, you don't have the, the the ability to connect to it. And so, like whenever we uh, some of our local researchers there were telling us, it's like, well, but there's electricity right there, yeah, right just there. It's just there, yeah. but yet, no, no, that's going. Uh, and it also reminds me of um, of other research in Congo that uh, we're involved in, where uh, so much of the electricity was being delivered for South Africa, and going over people's heads across the entire nation towards uh, South Africa, which is the the transnational inequalities uh, which have taken place. So yeah, very, very yeah, yeah. horrifying. But but, but let, let me build on that too, because I mean, uh, it just. It, we we both like to travel, right? And, and now we're yes. locked away. But but unless we <laughs> unless we go to those places and and see it, because last year I kind of took this laid back approach of yeah, I I, I it was like an exchange with a, a a university where we have ties with and a professor there. So I, I went to visit her, uh, and you know I took it as okay, maybe I'll come back in future years. But you have to go at least once to get a sense of what kind of research can you do? What are the what are the issues here? And once you go, then it opens up this huge box of all these different issues that, that are occurring and then you've never hardly ever read about. But but we, we look at we yeah, we look at our European or American system and yeah, of course we can do research because we're living here, it's it's easily accessible. But people are, are in a much, much worse position in in developing countries, but you know, it's I honestly I think you're so right and there's a there's an interesting aspect there that that I think has to be drawn out, which is, you know, <clears throat> there's there's no point being an energy researcher if you spend your career 
just in US or Netherlands or UK. There, I, I think it, I think you're actually doing a disservice to the field by doing that. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. There's so many really brilliant, interesting things to look at in those contexts. But globally speaking, you know, in terms of populations, uh, emerging markets, uh, emerging countries, and things like that, that's not where the real debates are. The real debates in energy, let's say, to get a, a fuller, more comprehensive understanding, you have to go to these places. You have to get a sense because I'll speak to somebody, you'll speak to somebody on Zoom. Uh, perhaps in Malawi or Myanmar or wherever, and things that they see as being normal uh, and they don't realize it. And, and therefore, like the amount of times where you're doing interviews, focus groups, or even just chatting on the side, and you're going, no, no, that's not normal. You know, yes. that's, you shouldn't, you know, so that it's, you're so right. It's so important to get away from. from yeah, the, I, I made a video. I made a video of this woman cooking on a three stone mm. fire. I think it's called. And I'm, so I made a video and I put it all together for the, for this trip and, and I showed it to my students. It was just like three, three women students. And, and they were like, yeah, so, <laughs> and they, I was like, but look, here's the firewood. And then here's this woman cooking with that firewood and she's breathing all the smoke in. It's really bad. Yeah. And, the, and they were from other countries, India and I forget the other ones and, and, or in uh, Kenya. And they're like, yeah, but that's how my mother or my grandmother cooks. Like that's for them it was completely normal. And, and yeah, yeah, it's bad, but you know, that's the way it is. And I was like, no, this is really from what we know from the literature and from, you know, other studies that have gone before us, at least this is really bad. And to have the electrical lines just overhead and, and look, deforestation just because they, they have to cook with wood rather than with mm. electricity. But the question is, yeah, how do you produce the electricity and, and, and all mm. this, right? So. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's where, you know, small scale hydro for us was coming in as a big thing. Uh, not not the large scale, uh, you know, uh, dams and things like that. There's a couple of those in, in Uganda, but but the you know small scale electricity generation and and heating and um, but but I, I think I think this is where it's so important for us because because we're not going to find workable solutions if we don't sort of interact as certainly as researchers with other researchers in these parts of the world and vice versa because <clears throat> i'll give you a good example um, that really stands out in my mind from malawi uh, it's a wonderful uh, monkey bay beautiful landscape um and we were getting taken around by a tour guide it was one of our days off i thought let's go get you know and anyway came up during our tour uh about climate change and his understanding of climate change is uh, that climate change is due to conflict and that basically it emerged from the Vietnam War onwards. I don't know why Vietnam War, but, okay. but Vietnam War onwards and war is what's creating climate change. Now, the important aspect about that isn't whether he's right or wrong. The point is that that's a commonly held view in that part of the world. You have to engage with that. Yeah, and you're not going to be able to create solutions if you don't talk about deforestation in Malawi, on yeah. energy. Like you're not going to get anywhere. Like you can talk to the cows come home about solar energy plants in the north of, of Malawi as much as the World Bank wants to, but if you don't talk about deforestation, you'll get nowhere. Yeah. Um, and th this is the thing that this is the reason why it's so important that we engage in these different knowledge sets and different understandings elsewhere. Um, 
and yeah, it looks like we're both driven by by the same imperative. Yeah, yeah. Really I mean, digging digging deeper in how different people yes. perceive climate change or what whatever it is, access yeah. mainly to energy you know, services in an academic yeah. way, right? How do they cook? How yeah. do they heat? All that and how it's generated, and it's it goes back to your PhD, basically, right? The the politics behind it, or at least where you started off off on. So let me let me we'll, we'll wrap this up, but um, ask you one one final question. Uh, we've covered all the questions. This is great. Um, although I'm going to skip over your Just North Horizon 2020 project. Yeah, so it's okay. I'll, it's the Arctic. It's cold. It's we don't just want to think about cold. <laughs> It's, we can't have a discussion about a warm place and a cold place. We'll just say the Arctic's going to be nice and warm soon enough. So exactly. Exactly. Uh, yay. Yay. It's a positive thing. Wonderful. <laughs> we, and even our own countries where we live, right? We're not going to have to go yeah. anywhere in the winter. So it's it's fine. Positive Which we aspect. are joking. In case anybody's listening, we are joking. <laughs> We're definitely joking. Uh, we, yeah. Too much. Um, Okay, just uh, teaching. So my, yes. my question to you, which, which is, I, I don't think I've found a good way, or I don't know, I'm never pleased, I would say, with, with when I finish up my uh, teaching around energy justice, or kind of this, because it's a lot of philosophical discussion. And I was just wondering, maybe how do you, how do you approach it when you have to teach uh, the topic of energy justice? Yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it like that. So, yeah, I think it's a very good question. So, um, I think the uh, the the best way of teaching energy justice is to use you know practical examples, and then for me, I mean, again, maybe building on my politics angle, is presenting decisions to be made across that practical example. So, um. You know, if you talk abstractly about the different types of justice frameworks from, you know, libertarian justice, liberal justice, you know, communitarian justice, etc., it all feels very abstract and it feels very nuanced and <clears throat> it can sometimes feel like, you know, what's the connection here? Uh, and I think that's still important to get groundings in, in the ways that we view our justice assumptions. But I think if you've got a practical energy system, like waste incineration I was talking about before is really uh, interesting as a way of creating energy where, you know, the, the end product is uh, largely, el you know, electricity, but then sort of go, right. Okay. Let's go through the different decisions that have been made, you know, for, for this either nationally waste incineration to be a policy or maybe particularly one waste incinerator plant and, and sort of go, well, what are the ethical questions at each of these stages <clears throat> is it ethically right uh, that we should do this and if it is ethically right well what sort of ideas tell us that you know is it um is it is it going back to robert nozick you know it's more than distribution it's also a procedural aspect you know that uh, it, as he says to royals or is it maybe uh, talk about nancy fraser's approach to recognition we need to recognize other communities that are impacted, not just those directly. <clears throat> but you sort of get students to reflect different stages of that decision-making to really get them to engage with, well, actually, you know, the ethics is really important uh, here, uh, not just the final price. So mm -hmm. I've done something before where, where I've sort of presented, here's the price difference. You know, you know, you, know you, you get them. You, you, you've been there. I've got the grids as well. You've got like... Uh, 
carrying capacity of yes. different energy sources and then you've got the the price and you've got the the lcoe you know this i just you did it last term. week yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. you know we've, we've all done it and students love it and we love it and it's really important to engage with long term but then you sort of go okay here's a price now let's go through the stages here and and the sometimes implicit decisions that you're making you build a nuclear power plant it's not just about the waste you're you're also going to have to decommission the plant you know, uh, which is a whole different discussion. So, you, like almost like mind mapping out the different ethical decisions that have been made throughout it. That's what that, I find that. most obvious. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mind map, yeah, yeah. You can draw different uh, quadrants for different types of yes. justice, almost. Yeah, yeah. like so, like uh, you know, uh, we did. I don't know if you've come across this uh, teaching technique called a silent seminar. No, I like it. Yeah. If I don't have to talk. <laughs> Teachers love it because the students don't talk. <laughs> no. <laughs> so oh, that's like what it means. You just lecture, you just talk for two hours or something. Perfect. Which, yeah, if you listen to this, you probably understand. This is, no, but this is genuinely a teaching uh, idea. So the, the idea is that you, you have a, I mean, it works best in small groups, obviously. So like a large lecture. So that's, you take a big piece of white paper and you put only one pen down on the table and let's say you've got 15 students and you put the problem in the middle uh, and then no student is allowed to talk and you're not allowed to talk and they have to mind map it out. Uh, so, <clears throat> so let's say you've got, I've done it before where, where I've got uh, the end price of, I can't remember what technology it was in one hand, and the end price of another technology here, okay? So I've got those here, and this is this pretends nuclear and waste uh, mm -hmm. incineration, which are bad examples for different reasons. But anyway, let's pretend they're there. And then you sort of go, okay, well, what are the ethical decisions that had to be made to get to that end price? Oh. Uh, so you give them, say, 20, 30 minutes maximum. You're not allowed to speak. And, you're, and if you pick up the pen, you have to allow somebody else to pick up the pen after you. So you can't always be uh, you holding the pen and only one person can hold the pen. Wow. It's fascinating because the other students who don't talk very much feel more comfortable to pick up the pen. Oh, I and like it's, it. Uh, yeah, it's called the silent seminar. It's very yeah. cool. And they, they're meant to bring in some of these things you were talking about before, basically. Yeah. Right? So, uh -huh. yeah, let's say you did like a two hour session and the first 45 minutes is a lecture. <clears throat> you, you're, you're given all the key components, all the key ideas, the different frameworks of justice. And then the second 45 minutes is, okay, now you're in a smaller group. Say a master's class might be ideal for this. Uh, and then you're like, okay, let's map it out. And then after that, we discuss it, put it up and go, okay, well, you know, what are these different, you know, you maybe grip in the different ethical decisions and, the different uh, question marks that come from it and go, well, now you see all this, do you still go for the one with the cheap? Yes, yes. The, the Here's the ethical implications or, of your cheap power. Yeah. Is it really so cheap? You, you, get, uh -huh. you get the students to drive out what those ethical decisions are. That's just that's, that's a thing I've used uh, in uh -huh. St. Andrews. I haven't used it here yet uh, on energy, um, which, uh, which I thought worked really well. Cool. I like it. Okay, I'll steal it for the online environment. Please do. <laughs> everyone yes, has, yes. Everyone has to mute themselves and then they, <laughs> they have to do it together. No, so, totally, totally. Yeah, I think I think it can work. Okay, Darren, thank you very much. Really, this was a, a great discussion too. Any Anything to add? Any final? 
No, I'd just like to say uh, thanks for the invitation and um, <clears throat> it's been a lot of fun and uh, yeah, we should definitely follow up on on those things that have emerged here yeah. as well for us to think of projects or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.